0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined, as always, by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, uh, I just was reading your quote in that piece um, in Vanity Fair. Yes. And it's awesome. I am wondering if, if the next time you're quoted in like Vanity Fair or New York Times or something like that, you can find a way to wedge in the name of the podcast. Would that be possible? Oh, I can do that pretty easily, yes. Um... No, I was very impressed to see that um, series of quotes from notable scholars and authorities on the question of criticism itself, um, apropos of another tossed off comment by the president. Um, <laughs> and uh, I am joined also by Sarah Bae Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, you're finishing up your first full academic year at Bowdoin. Is that correct?
1: I, I am. I can't believe that that like has to like hang next to, you know, Harvey and Vanity Fair. <laughs> but, but thanks for, the, for that panel. I appreciate it.
0: I think these are equivalent and comparable <laughs> accomplishments. I've always wondered about the experience of starting a job in the middle of the academic year. I mean, in a way, does this feel like you just finished your first year? What was that first semester like?
1: It, it You know, I mean, it, you're just, it, I think it's like starting any job, right? You just feel like you're sort of swimming in the in the middle of, you know, a, an entirely new world. And I, I kind of dig the novelty of that. Uh I'm finishing my first year as chair, and that presents an interesting set of challenges and, and perspectives on things. So, it's it's been a it's been fun, and and I'll say that you know, as people across this campus can attest, I mention the podcast constantly. So I don't know what Harvey's <laughs> issue is. Yes, I, know, I tell Harvey. random strangers, "Hey, by the way, I have a podcast." Yeah. Um, this week or
0: this edition, we have um, something new that we're going to try to celebrate. What is the end of our Um, season, close to the end of the academic year. Um, We're going to try a new format. We have solicited listener questions, and we have a ton of great questions that listeners to the podcast have submitted. We are going to do our best to get to all of these, but it's an experiment, and uh, we will see. These questions are really good, and most of them would merit a full 20-minute segment on their own, um, but we're going to do our best to just get through these and respond to all of them. We are planning to give away a an on tap uh, coffee mug, um, courtesy of Sarah Bay Jung. And so, at the end of the podcast, we will figure out some way um, who which of the of the question submitters gets that coffee mug. Before we get to the first question, uh, we have a brief news roundup. I thought it was worth mentioning that as part of the continuing funding bill that Congress passed a few weeks ago, that the NEA, um, and the NEH continued their present level of support. In fact, the NEA, I believe I read, uh, gets an additional $2 million. Um, M-N-E-H-2. and so because we've been talking about NEA funding on past segments, I thought I would mention that. Um, there also, I was alerted to this fact by a, an excellent article in Jacobin magazine, um, specifically about the arts, um, I'll, I'll link to it on the website, but in this uh, uh, Jacobin article they entitled Saving the NEA won't Save Culture," they, you know, <laughs> mention the fact that for now, at least the NEA continues to be funded. Hey, I called it. I called the increase. Yeah, the, yeah that's right. <laughs> You absolutely did. Yeah, that continues to be supported. Uh, I saw online that um, SUNY Stony Brook, there is a proposal afoot to deal with some budget problems there by, among other things, um, ending the theater arts major. And so this is not, you know, a a sort of widespread problem. Um, Although I I guess, you know, budget problems for state universities is a widespread problem, but uh, people should look online and find ways to um, advocate for the continuing of the theater major at, at SUNY Stony Brook. And I believe that there are other programs that are being discussed as being um, combined or, or or ended.
1: I know there was a proposal to suspend doctoral studies in complit cinema and cultural studies. And am I remembering, this? I don't know if it's doctoral or the undergraduate major, but some cut to Hispanic studies as well. yeah. Um, on a much
0: sunnier note, um, uh, we heard from Henry Bile, friend of the show, who emailed us to remind us that uh, there are other marathoners in theater and performance studies. So Henry mentions that Heather Nathans, Michal Kobyalka, uh, Terry Dean, um, and his colleague at Kansas, Peter Zazali, are also all marathon completers. So we can now keep a running tally of theater and performance scholars who have completed the 262 That's all the news that I had. Um, Should we dive right into these questions, guys?
1: Let's go for the questions.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, So, Hannah Greenstreet. emailed and asked, my question is, what advice would you give to new graduate students in theater/ performance studies, particularly those not based in a theater department? As context, I'll be start- I will be starting a PhD on contemporary theater in an English department in the UK. so a bit different from graduate school in the US as I'll be going straight into the thesis. So what do you think, guys, what is the advice that we would give to new graduate students in theater and performance studies? and specifically those who are not getting their PhD specifically in a theater department.
1: I sort of feel like uh, Harvey, as someone (laughs) in a doctoral uh, graduate program, ought to be the first to answer this question. (laughs) But I will simply say that I think there are actually two parts to this, right? One is the, what is advice to new graduate students? And the second is, what is advice to graduate students? And I think you could probably also extrapolate this to faculty uh, starting uh, new positions in in as theater of performance people in non theater performance departments.
0: Yeah. So, what do you think? Any words of advice for for either side of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say that the most important thing for any graduate student, you know, especially those who are placed outside of a theater department, but they identify as performance studies person, um, is to develop a network and a cohort of friends and colleagues right where you can essentially support mentor um, commiserate alongside one another and it's actually it's the cohort it's the group that rises uh, not the individual so that's the most important thing that too often we think of scholarship and life in the academy as being a person working by themselves but it's really about sort of what is that cohort effect uh, that you can uh, join and be a part of to rise
1: the, the one big piece I would say for, for new grad students, and this kind of goes uh, across the board, um, I think Harvey's point about uh, cohort and, uh, is a really important one, and, as, and I think that applies to peers as well as to mentors. Uh, you know, and, and looking for who are the people that are really going to guide you through this process. And they might be very immediate mentors, as in the case of the UK, where you jump into a thesis and you're really working pre- predominantly with one person as your supervisor. <clears throat> but also thinking about starting to network throughout the field um, and, and really thinking about who you want your work to be in, in conversation and dialogue with. And not being afraid to seek out those people and initiate those conversations and think about uh, think about that as an audience right who's who do you want to read your work? Uh, who do you want to talk about your work? Uh, who mm-hmm. do you want to be responding to and I think if you can think about that at the beginning, that will really help shape not only the research and your scholarship but also begin to form the the sort of you know your own ecosystem of support and connection and, and network as you as you develop over the next few years of grad school
0: I, I would add to those bits of advice that you know it's actually it's it's an interesting question partly because the combined features of it being the UK context and you know someone studying theater and performance studies in a non theater and performance uh, uh, department are together that's pretty difficult. So some of this advice might not be great because you're not necessarily looking for jobs in the US, but specifically on the issue of being trained in an English PhD, I would say that it would be good if you're looking, especially at at jobs in the US, to get some um, production experience. So be able to say in an interview that you could direct uh, a play um, in a department season, because many US universities, The people that they hire are expected to be able to do that. Um, And also, you know, look at the classes that, you know, if you're interested in jobs in theater and performance departments, um, look at the sort of service classes that are frequently taught there. So um, theater history, uh, dramatic criticism, intro to theater. These are things that, you know, people looking to hire you will be interested to know if you can teach. And if you don't you know, if your PhD is in English and not theater and performance specifically, they may wonder if you can teach those things. And so, I, w- I would be looking for a way to get those credentials so that I could um, bridge from an English PhD program to a, a theater studies job.
1: And one last sort of addendum is, as for people who are starting, is is I, in my experience and in talking with other folks, I think the first year can often be the hardest, or you can certainly feel like the hardest. Um, and, and parts of it might even feel impossible. So I think finding ways to, you know, figuring out how you need, what you need in order to work your best, trying to craft a schedule that makes as much sense, trying to get uh, the support that you need, whether that's personal, emotional, physical, uh, kind of going back around, I fully support finding an embodied practice of some kind, whether that's, you know, yoga or running or, you know, something that's not about being in a library uh, that I think is, is often really helpful if you can sort of start that pa- those patterns early in your grad studies. Indeed.
0: Um, why don't we move on to the next question? So Lindsay Mantuan writes... I have a few things I'd love to hear your thoughts on. How should departments balance training students to be theater professionals with the more historical slash theoretical philosophy behind liberal arts education? What work can we be doing to raise the profile of theater departments across campus? And how can we create more links between our classroom and performance work and our local communities? So this is one of the uh, questions that had three different questions embedded in it. I'm, I will take a swipe at just that first one. Uh, how should departments balance training students to be theater professionals versus the kind of liberal arts um, education education philosophy? People have different takes on this. I, I think I am heavily slanted towards the liberal arts and humanities training. I think that if students who are interested in theater are really taught to be creative and really taught to think critically and communicate very well, if they know history, if they know theory, then they're going to be excellent theater professionals if that's their goal. You know, there are BFA programs, there are MFA programs that are dedicated to professional training. I think those are great. But personally, for a theater BA, I think that we should be trying to train complete people and intellectuals who are going to bring new ideas and and exciting things to theater rather than training um, in professional skills.
2: I agree. I would say that uh, to add to this in terms of how to sort of raise the profile of theater studies, it's important to realize that a lot of people who major in theater don't actually go into the theater, <laughs> right? Uh, and that's not a sign of failure. I think what we need to do is we need to do a better job of celebrating success, right? So Uh, why not have theater departments um, prominently and boldly uh, acknowledge the people who were successful in law and medicine and business uh, with theater degrees and have them talk about uh, how the skill sets they learned uh, in theater applies to a variety of industries. I think that is really important and that needs to happen more and more. Absolutely.
1: And, you know, I think there's a way within certain departments where, you know, I think for the students also, because this is, you know, sometimes this, this tension between theory and practice comes from students and what they feel compelled and interested in and, and excited by. And th- that's almost never, uh, you know, very few people come out of high school thinking theater studies, that's that's where I'm at, right? Uh, but is making it clear, you know, what those, what historical groundings, what theoretical questions, how those get answered in performances and how performance can raise new questions for you know theories of practice and ideas about you know not just history as something that happened and is done, but as something that is ongoing and continually shaped. So I think, you know, for me, I mean, I'm I'm in a small liberal arts college where the context is very much uh, on the sort of integration of history and and looking at at performance as an extension of that in, in various ways. I think the parallel is actually. I'm going to be a sports person today, right? The, the parallel is to sports, right? Like most of the most collegiate athletes do not play professional sports, right. but I've never been to a panel uh, at any college or university that is like why the sports matter uh, and why we should have them, right? But I've been on right. plenty, and I've been to plenty of why the arts are important. But I yeah. think it's a it's a similar thing, right? You're training uh, different skills towards uh, a compelling end, and that serves, you know, l- you know, baseball playing lawyers as much as it does, you know, softball theater people.
0: Um, let's move on because we have lots of uh, good questions. Um, so an anonymous listener wrote us this email, and I'm going to read the whole thing. In the wake of the uproar surrounding Rebecca Tuvel's article in Hypatia. I find myself wondering about the curious institutional niche filled by TDR. It is a widely respected journal in our field, and its editor, contributing editors, and other collaborators are extremely accomplished. Yet, being non-peer-reviewed, it occupies an unusual place in the academy at large. Articles published in TDR likely do not count in some tenure or promotion reviews, for example. What's more, its scholarship often circulates in our field as if it were peer-reviewed. I myself cite articles from the journal and assign them to my students with a kind of blithe confidence that I might not extend to other non-peer-reviewed works. Without impugning Richard Schechner's leadership or the groundbreaking scholarship published in the journal, I wonder if the lack of peer review at TDR leaves the journal, and thus the field, vulnerable in certain ways. Um, Interesting question. You know, I will note that TDR is not the only journal in our field that's not peer-reviewed. I know Performance Research, uh, which I've contributed to and um, is a really exciting journal, um, that's also not peer-reviewed. But it's an interesting question. I'm not sure why TDR is not peer-reviewed, and it seems as though the vetting of the scholarship is high quality. You know, there's a large editorial board the editorship of the journal, I believe, is now distributed among NYU and Brown, and um, there's a third university. Do you guys know which one it is off? It's Princeton, Princeton right? Singapore? Yeah. Is it Princeton? Oh, yeah, because okay. it's through Jill. Right. Jill Dolan. So with all that intellectual firepower and personnel, I'm not sure why it's not peer-reviewed.
1: I may be misremembering this, but I have a vague memory of Schechner actually addressing this in in an editorial comment about why TDR oh. is not is not peer reviewed. And um, if you give me five minutes to look it up, I bet I can find <laughs> it. But well, I'll uh, tell you what.
0: Why don't instead I'll of doing that, that, why don't no? why don't we look it up and we'll link to it? Okay. Do you remember anything about that rationale?
1: I I, um, I don't. I remember that. I mean, in my memory, it had something to do with uh, a certain uh, this will surprise you, an oppositional position to like <laughs> academia and academic yeah. practices at large. Yeah. Um, I would also, I mean, it, it occurs to me that that maybe with TDR and, and certainly I would I, I, um, with uh, theater at Yale um, and performance research, ar- arguably these are not non-peer reviewed. They're not blind peer-reviewed. Mm -hmm. Right. There is a way in which they do have a a review of other people in the field who are affiliated with the journal uh, who we would consider to be peers. Right. I mean, I don't think that the people reading uh, any of the folks on the editorial boards of these of these journals are different from uh, what we might imagine a pool of anonymous peer reviewers. But it's, it's that it's not blind peer review. Right. Um and it does I mean it does make a difference for people whose institutions require that their CVs make real hard and fast distinctions between peer-reviewed journals and non-peer-reviewed journals. Sure. Um, and so I think I think that certainly affects, you know, people again, I think different institutions treat that very differently. Um, yeah. I think it's, well, it's, it's more rigorous at the R1 schools, I would think.
0: Yeah, and I I, you know, um I will confess, I don't have an article published in TDR, so I have not faced this situation. Um, But when I did go up for tenure, you know, WashU sort of did a – they want to know information about all the journals that I was published in and how what their acceptance rate was and are they peer-reviewed. And when you're being evaluated by people outside the field, those are the kind of markers of quality that translate. You know, everybody in the field recognizes that TDR, the Yale Theater – that these are highly prestigious publications and you want your ideas in there. Um, But it does create a bit of a, you know, a sort of disincentive to work hard on being placed there before you're tenured if you're at a certain type of institution. I wonder, if, I wonder if part of the rationale isn't that, you know, TDR publishes different types of essays. So they have their sort of, you know, articles, but they have their provocations and reviews. And from time to time, they'll publish things that are more like, you know, poetry and literature. Um, so maybe, it, maybe that kind of nimbleness is something that they want to preserve, and that's why it's not. I mean, my, I would expect... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, my sense of this is
2: that, one way to think about the role of TDR and some of these other journals in the field is you know they're they're widely circulating, highly cited uh, and quite prominent. and and the status and prestige of the editors certainly help to give it status, right? So I think that's really important to note. And there's a way in which if you publish in TDR, if you publish in Yale theater, you publish in performance research, You know that your work is going to circulate. It's going to be seen. It's going to be cited. It's going to engage people. It's going to engage people. It'll be lifted and 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 circulate widely. And that's something that I think is worth noting. And and it's it's that level of citation counts and sort of broad use and many downloads. Like those are things that people can use as evidence in support of tenure. Uh, So it's not Mm -hmm. a it's not a concern to me.
0: I would like to find that editorial comment and find out what that rationale was because. In spite of all these facts, in spite of the fact that it's, you know, you want to be published in there, whether or not it's technically, you know, blind-reviewed or peer-reviewed, um, it might be better off if it was officially peer-reviewed. I will say one thing. I, a few years
2: ago, oh, my, probably like 10 years ago, so more than a few years ago, I interviewed R- Richard Schechner um, for an ASTR online article, which has now since disappeared, which is part of the problem of online publishing. <laughs> and and I asked Richard about, like, his process uh, of for editing... TDR, And what he said was he felt that where TDR was ahead of other journals uh, was centered in the fact that it was one long term editor, you know, who across decades uh, began to shape the tone and the style uh, and the feel. Right. Of of the scholarship that came through it, you know, which is different than other journals where it's rotating editors every two or four years uh, and then it's just the journals lack mm-hmm. an identity. You know. So I think that there's a way in which you can look at that sort of through line to say that whether you're looking at work from the late 1960s to work coming out today, you know, it has um, um, a connection uh, to this uh, similar process. You know, it, has, it ties into this long history of, of rigor uh, through publication, even while not being peer reviewed. So I think that is something, the longer history of the journal in terms of its long process too, uh, is something to mm-hmm. celebrate.
0: Um, Why don't I get into some of the tweets we got in response to our prompts. Um, So uh, Alexandra Ripp um, at Ripple 617 on Twitter asks, advice for Ph.D. students interested in more admin university jobs to promote art and performance across institution, uh, both in academic and campus life. Um, she tweets uh, again. I also notice more arts initiatives in general, starting UNC, Brown, Columbia, Penn, maybe a topic of discussion for how we can contribute. Um, And then she also followed up with uh, a request for us to talk about TV, (laughs) post-2000 TV. So maybe we should pick uh, one of these or any of these uh, questions to respond to. What do you guys think?
1: I would would be curious. I mean, I'm curious by the university admin jobs. I don't... I don't know m- much about about them and I'm curious uh if if either of you have seen more specific uh kind of a, a more specific, you know, job postings that would align with this. I don't really I have
0: not looked at many admin jobs, but I think, you know, um There is certainly a movement afoot to train PhD students in um, alt ac careers, right? Um, Administration is not alt ac I mean, administration is in the academy, but it's not the sort of, um, you know, career path to a tenure-track job that many people have in mind when they have a PhD. It's an interesting question. Um, You know, a a strong PhD student in theater and performance studies is going to be a good candidate for... Um, a variety of administrative jobs um, whether there are administrative jobs that are focused on art and performance is another question um, but yeah I mean I, i'm I'm coming up a little bit empty on this I would I guess I would say if you know many of the same things are going to be important to launching a career in administration so you want to be well networked you want to really have a good basis of expertise and be well respected by your um, recommenders so my hunch would be if you're going after and uh, you know you're open to administrative jobs um, you should still fashion yourself as a top-notch scholar who takes you know uh, the research and teaching work very seriously Um, I wonder if the
1: parallel here is like to um, you know folks who go on to work as curators in university museums or Um, Or, you you know, universities that have production, sort of in-house production houses and production seasons, right? So sometimes there are theaters affiliated with universities that operate almost as an independent producer within the context of the... Uh, you know of the of the university, but are not necessarily specifically affiliated with any of any particular department.
0: Yeah, the, lots of big universities have um, you know so presenting organizations right. that present performance. I don't know, Harvey. What do you think? Are there? Can you think of graduate students that you've advised or that you know about that have um, gone into administration? Oh,
2: absolutely. Uh, we have quite a few who've gone into like serving as directors of different centers uh, at a variety of universities, such as. Like Christy Bean, uh, one of my advisees, is currently. I think she's the associate director of the teaching center at Columbia University in New York. Uh, yeah, so if basically if you want a job in the academy as a director or as an assistant director or coordinator or something, uh, you want to gain that experience while you're on the ground pursuing your graduate degree, right? Because it's there's opportunities for you to intern, to volunteer, Uh, many universities offer funding lines attached to these centers, uh, sort of centers for leadership, for example, and those are opportunities for you to cultivate and build a resume uh, that makes you viable for a job in addition to uh, your academic study.
0: Do do you think that um, some of these students at some point along their PhD study start to think, oh, okay, maybe I'm more, you know, interested in an administrative job as opposed to You know going out on the tenure track job yeah
2: it's i've spoken to a number of people um about the path that you take you know with a degree in hand (laughs) you know and you know for for many it's it's working as part of a team uh within these centers while being a graduate student excites them to the work that occurs in a, um, a gender studies or a women's uh, studies center uh, or the type of commitment to pedagogy that exists within a center for teaching excellence so i've seen that and i've also seen people who mm-hmm. uh, just didn't want to cast their fate you know to the winds in terms of being hired by you know some random university in some random city in some random state right uh, and they want more control about you know where they're going to go where they're going to live you know what their you know work Life will be in terms of the work-life balance. Yeah.
0: Makes sense. Alex, you know, proposes these other very interesting questions about arts initiatives and um, TV. Maybe we should flag some of these questions for future segments. I will uh, say, I'm
2: catching the what question do you think? of TV. Yeah, go for oh, it. i to say the same
0: thing, Sarah. Go for it.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I think I think the the question of TV is a really interest in is a really interesting one. I mean, I think the the the, the different genre. Uh, of television that are coming out I just I just was a reader on an undergraduate English thesis on the sadcom and Adorno uh, which was a really fascinating uh, kind of look at and, and caused me to watch a lot of television that I had not previously spent a lot of time with that I really I you know I think is really compelling so I you know I think there's a ton of interesting TV happening right now I think we could Flag that yeah, for a future segment, or
0: let's make a segment out of it for, for later. I, mean, I will are, say if you haven't seen
1: BoJack Horseman, uh, <laughs> you are you are missing something really quite quite marvelous. I, okay, I love well, that show,
0: Sarah. You have just accidentally created an outstanding segue for our next tweet because uh, Donatella Galea, I believe, um, <laughs> uh, is her name. I think her Twitter avi is a character from BoJack Horseman. Um, uh, so she tweets um, on being included. The Reorder of Things, and BDS as related to the Theater Academy. So in this tweet, she has, you know, in about 100 characters, basically asked us three gigantic questions. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I because I got this tweet, I had heard of these books and I have not read them, but I looked, up, looked them up and read reviews. Um, on Being Included by Sarah Ahmed is... Um, about the uh, discursive and experiential components of diversity pushes in academic institutions. I think that's a 2012 book. Um, The Reorder of Things by Roderick Ferguson um, is about the kind of appropriation of 60s and 70s radicalism through um, interdisciplines like gender studies, uh, race studies, and, you know, performance studies is arguably in that cluster. And BDS refers to the uh, boycott, divest, sanction movement, which is a uh, the idea of uh, pressuring um, the, the state of Israel on its policies related to Palestinian people um, through boycott, divestment and sanctions so what to do here i i will say this i don't want to be dodging the question about bds i have thoughts about this um but i don't know that there's a way to relate that specifically to theater and performance studies and we tend to you know avoid topics that are just general higher ed and i certainly don't think it's appropriate for like a two-minute quick dive so maybe we've I don't know. Flag that uh, for later discussion. Um, on being included in reorder of things, these are really interesting books, and th- there would there are interesting ways we could go responding to the way theater and performance studies relates to them. Do you guys have any thoughts off the top of your head?
1: Having only read an, an you know an article or an essay, somewhat you know that I think Ahmed was working on, or that comes out of out of the book, I I feel loosely conversant with some of the major ideas, but. But uh, but haven't looked at the book very closely, um, except to say that I think I think you know it strikes me that theater and performance studies, uh, you know, in twenty seventeen going forward is probably ripe for a major rethinking of the question of multiculturalism, d- diversity, representation, and mm-hmm. and appropriation within our programs. You know, I yeah. mean, we're a good generation. Past uh, the height of the culture wars uh, that initiated a lot of these discussions, I think the the conversation has become mostly one of, of unified agreement in in terms of goals, and yet we see many of the same outcomes not really moving the needle very far in terms of how many people um, are on stage and what the diversity of our productions look like. And so I think it's probably it's it's probably a. a Worth a, a major kind of field-wide conversation about you know where are we what 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 have we been pursuing what's worked in the past and and where are we coming up short and and what does that mean for for continuing particularly in the context of a larger cultural conversation about questions of of you know exchange value of individual university degrees on the open market and so I think where where the, how those two things fit together I think makes. Um, is, is probably worth a, a much larger conversation than we can have here. But but I, I, I would invite it and, and hope it comes soon.
2: Yeah, and, and I guess I'll add, you know, with note to the Ferguson, you know, there's a way in which, you know, there is a rhetoric of diversity um, and inclusion that exists within theater, right? Uh, that there's no... Um, Sort of lack of calls for greater diversity in terms of season planning, greater diversity for faculty, uh, a call to sort of change the face of the types of theater that we create and who appears on stage. You know, but you know, there's also a way in which we don't always look at sort of the conservative trends that exist within theater practice, right? And how you know the larger professional theater industry itself, uh, in many ways, is structured to stand opposed, <laughs> you know, and, and in opposition. Uh, to changing the look and the face and the style of, of commercial theater, right, which has a ripple effect in terms of who goes into the industry in the first place. You know, so, so, so that's an issue we have. And we still have universities that continue to celebrate Broadway as the ideal. Uh, and when you do that, uh, then that's in many ways sort of undermining uh, your ability to advocate for a different style of production, a, st- a different style of work that will be more inclusive. You know, so I think that Ferguson's work certainly applies to theater uh, and could be a, certainly adapted.
0: Yeah, I think actually for both of these books, there are really interesting questions that arise from what's unique about our field. Um, on the you know the the linguistic performance or the sort of discursive performance of diversity, you know, Ahmed's book, I believe the basic argument is that. The, the articulation of diversity goals and values can become a kind of substitute for um, changing practices. And so in a way, you know, if you have an unsatisfactory uh, diversity situation in terms of student body or faculty, there can be the, you know, uh, convening of a task force and the hiring of administrators to work on diversity and the um, framing of policies and that these things, you know, sort of perform one's um, attempt to be diverse but don't necessarily uh, result in tangible changes. Because theater and performance is what it is, and because we are putting the bodies of students on stage, because we're staging the work of writers of different backgrounds, um, we're in that intersection between the discourse of diversity and the you know, experiential um, uh, creation of diverse environments. In terms of the Ferguson and this question of a kind of, um, you know, the interdiscipline phenomenon, I think uh, theater and performance studies is also very interesting as well because, you know,
1: uh,
0: performance studies is sometimes called an interdiscipline. It belongs to that cadre of um, relatively recent Uh, departments and programs Um, but performance studies is not overtly or on the surface about you know the representation of um, previously underrepresented groups it's about the kind of redefinition of a form of human expression as opposed to theater I don't know I I actually think you know maybe we should look at these books as as things that we could frame uh, larger discussions about but I think they're great suggestions.
1: It Strikes me that it might be worth going back also to you know Walter Ben Michaels. Um, what was the title of his work? The What's the problem with multiculturalism? Or what about multiculturalism? Anyway, it, some of the same arguments that you know he was making yep. in that book.
0: Um, Good signature. Stalter segments. Pace. Yes, let's. I will. We'll flag these. There's there some go. really great suggestions here. Sunny Stalter Pace tweets at us. What are you working on over the summer? best advice for scholars not yet in or best advice for scholars not in theater slash performance departments biggest influence on research and writing style so again three dynamite questions in one tweet Um, (laughs) who wants to take one of these on i'll say what i'm working on over the summer i'm working on my um I'm, i'm determined to get a very uh big start on my book on performance and social theory i'm obsessed with it i've got a you know, list of books that I'm reading and very eager to get working on it um, that's what I'm working on this summer
1: I'm continuing to chip away at uh, digital historiography and performance chip 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 chip, chip. But, um, <laughs> but doing some travel related to that uh, mainly around uh, museums and cultural sites that are using sort of an intersection of digital technology and performance that I think are quite fun and, um, and working on uh, Christopher Donk's uh, new piece, which I think is quite quite fun. See,
2: and I, see, this summer I am, well, for the first part of the summer, I'm editing a special issue of Youth Theatre Journal. And that goes in in August. Uh, and fortunately, we're in a quarter system, so I still have another month of summer after that. And then my plan is just to vacation and take it easy, give the brain a chance to recharge and in December, I've heard about that. <laughs> in, December, I have a, I in December, I have a slew of deadlines. So, my goal one. is just to rest, <laughs> recover, recharge, and then get back to writing in the fall. Oh, I will say, uh, in it, terms it, of writer influence, just one quick thing. Yeah. Uh, so, John Jackson, who's currently a dean over at UPenn right now, uh, he's been a really uh, big influence on me in terms of using the word folk or in folks uh, to talk about people. And that word and and those words have been extraordinarily useful for me in terms of writing about uh, racial identity and embodiment. The word folk? Yeah, like sort of black folk, black folks. you know. I mean, it's it's not something that comes naturally to me in in terms of just my everyday speech, uh, but it's really handy and super helpful in terms of writing for me.
0: That's fantastic. Sarah, would you want to throw out just an influence? It doesn't have to be your biggest influence ever, but off the the top of your head.
1: A major influence on me is... uh, was one of my undergraduate uh, professors, Larry Rosenwald, at Wellesley College, who is just one of the, uh, is a really beautiful writer and a very careful writer. And uh, I continue to read his stuff with great enthusiasm. He. You know he's written for academic audiences, but he never writes as as if it is for academic audiences primarily. There's something incredibly accept, uh, accessible and and I would say lyrical and poetic about a lot of his a lot of his work. And he just uh, his most recent thing is he edited a book uh, for Libraries of Congress or Library of the Americas. I think it's I can't remember Library of something big called War No More. And it's a collection of peace, of writings, of anti-war writings and writings about, about peace movements. And it's just a, an extraordinarily heartfelt uh, project. And his mm-hmm. intro is, is extra- extraordinary. So I, I continue to, to see him as a major influence on my, as a sort of aspirational influence on my work.
0: Um, you know, for, for many years, when I was working on my first book the two books that I had in my head that I really wanted to emulate were um, The Recurrence of Fate by Spencer Golub, who was my advisor at Brown, um, and Joe Roach's The Player's Passion. Um, And these are two scholars who do not, I don't think, really work in the same way, um, but uh, those are sort of exemplary books that I really wanted my book to you know, I aspired to to um, completing books that were like theirs. Why don't we move on? So I'm because we're getting close to running out of time. Um, I'm going to put a couple of these together. We got a couple of um, questions from uh, curators of uh, theater collections. So the Harvard Theater Collection Twitter feed um, asks, what historical and or contemporary materials and sources do scholars value that performing arts libraries might be overlooking and then um, eric uh Kaliri, who is the curator of the um, uh, uh, oh wait um, yeah he's the curator of the um, harry ransom center um wrote on Facebook, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the role of archives in current theater and performance studies research. What challenges do scholars currently face when doing research and what can archives do to increase access if access is of interest to the field? Thanks to each of you for your work and wisdom in this podcast. So this is great. I'm so glad that um, these folks um, raised that. Um, They're related questions. Uh, What do we want from our uh, archives where we're doing research, um, and what are the challenges that we face with archives?
1: Okay, I'll, I'll say the most simple, right? M- more digital access, <laughs> uh, more digitized more digital. <laughs> uh, material, uh, you know, things that you can access from a distance uh, in, in meaningful ways. You know, I, I think that's just a constant. The other thing I would say for that I think is really helpful is recognizing, uh, sort of, in the wake of you know broad spectrum kind of ideas, the connections to other collections. So I'm thinking like you know TV studies and and TV archives and research, right? Um, like if you wanted to look at instances of theatrical or let's say musical parodies in TV shows, uh, how would you how would you start to find that? Right, um, so I think a lot of popular culture collections, uh, you know theater has has kind of remained close to literary and, and manuscript collections uh, and and those kinds of textual archives. And so I think you know, I'd love to see, and I don't have any solutions. I think that's a pretty big question, but it's an interesting one as more and more material becomes sort of cycles through. As uh, as video and and audio, how do we integrate that within and and make meaningful finding aids and and metadata to connect to existing resources?
0: Harvey, what do you think in terms
2: of material to preserve for the archive? I love House Manager production reports. I love those. Absolutely huh. love those. Uh, so that would be big for me. Uh, and then also, what archives can do in terms of access. In in the absence of having everything digitized, I would love for short term, like super short term uh, residencies where you can go in and actually see what's there and then to know whether you need to spend more time at the archive. So not three months, but like a week, huh. like that would be really helpful.
0: Oh, that's a great idea. Um, yeah, it's a tough thing. You know, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in archives on the 18th century and 18th century France. Um
1: it's Lots of good diff- TV in that period. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> lost. No, the the, it's the like TV really was, sad.
0: There, there were cool magic lanterns um, and weird like optical experiments, but no TV per se. Um, the, I, that's because it was
1: not preserved well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, it all it was all lost. Um, you know, I think it's difficult to sort of make blanket statements about what types of sources scholars want because you frame a project around an intellectual question and then you want to go see what's there um uh you know Certain categories of objects that I know certain scholars have been interested in, Um, theater iconography. I don't know if this is still the case, but I remember hearing years ago uh, from Lawrence Senelik that he was working on a book on theater iconography. And uh, I think that would be partly convenient for him because I believe the Harvard Theater Collection actually has an outstanding um, collection of 19th century theater iconography house manager reports absolutely sort of backstage materials that can tell you something about um audiences backstage operations um those sorts of uh you know behind the scenes pieces of paper are absolutely useful and you know uh, Derek Miller, um, another Boston-based scholar, uh, who's been working on um, the sort of economics of theater. If other people are working in this way, then knowing, you know, what the, um, you know, sort of box office take and seats that were um, purchased are, is useful. Um but I don't know, these are both, you know, the Harry Ransom Center, the Harvard Theater Collection, these are exemplary institutions, and um, we really, we, we depend on you, and we really value the, the work that you do. I, I will add one more contribution that um, is that there are, you know, these curious publications that are, um, you know, extensive bibliographies. Uh, lists of publications. Um, Don Wilmeth, uh, who's emeritus at, at Brown and who did a lot of work on early American theater history, um, published, I believe, a sort of you know bibliography of early American theater, which is just a book-length list of other books. There's a terrific text. Um, about 18th century French theater by Claude Brenner and it is nothing more than a list of the approximately 12,000 plays that were written in France during that century and when you get deep into a publishing or deep into a research project if you can have reference and bibliography works like that at hand when you're in the archive that can be really helpful as well
1: just one one last thing about the the uh, both of these the, the questions Harvard Theater Library and also um, Eric um, these are both places that I had the, the opportunity to visit recently and and, uh, and I want to thank both Eric and, and Matthew for being so generous with their time and in fact Matthew Whitman took my performance histories class through uh, a collection you know he sort of pulled out a sample of the Harvard Theater collection for us that kind of you know made 12 undergraduate students day so it, anyway so I you know hug your local archivist curator (laughs) uh, today because they are really like incredibly wonderful and and generous people who in in my experience like you can I mean one of my favorite afternoons was just wandering around with Eric and at the Harry Ransom Center as he pulled out like cool thing after cool thing you know when I was there so so thanks thanks to both of those folks for 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 everything they do for us. And the
0: curator's role is so important because they know what exists. It's interesting, we come at these objects from the opposite side. You know, the researcher wants to know about a question, but the archivist knows what exists. And you may have no idea, you know, very often the thing you hope will be in the archives is not there, but there will be other things that completely send you on a different journey. So, um, indeed. So... Um, we've got a few more questions that we can respond to. Um, Patrick McKelvey writes uh, that uh, we're still all waiting to hear about fantasy academic departments. Um, I I guess we didn't talk about this on the air. We decided not to do a segment about that, (laughs) though I still would love to in some way, maybe in a private gathering, actually do fantasy academic department. The problem with it is that it the reason it would be fun is that we would end up sort of rating our colleagues, you know, and that's just something that I don't know that we can do on the air in a public way.
1: I I do have a timely contribution to this though, which is to say that, that I have, um, because one of our categories that we didn't, that we didn't take was, was like adjunct. And so I'll Uh say that in honor of mother's day, (laughs) um, I am going to claim for my academic fantasy department, my mom, um, mm-hmm. Mary Robinson, who has been uh, serving as an adjunct long-term uh, lecturer in uh, theater, teaching predominantly children's theater, um, and uh, and acting in theater performance at California State University, Sacramento. So, and and now I'm good. Like I have my whole department, <laughs> and I yeah, really but, but, I feel like you know <sighs> I can do anything now.
0: Yeah, but Sarah, if I get the first draft pick, I'm going to draft your mom immediately. Gosh and then darn it! He... Well
1: then, you know. Okay, well then my backup is my dad. Uh, because everybody needs a puppeteer, right? I don't know what theater department is complete without a puppeteer. So, you know, I really, I, my entire department is now staffed with family members. So. <laughs>
0: So Kyle A. Thomas, uh, another listener, writes, I'd love to hear more about the influence on mobile technology in performance, especially as it may be reshaping the conventions and ways in which theater has been traditionally defined. Love the podcast and all you folks are doing. Um, This sounds like a question especially for you, Sarah.
1: Uh, so this is a long one. <laughs> um, and I'll actually point to a number of other people who are doing some really important work in this area. There's actually a piece that just came out, or a book that just came out, um, edited by Emanuel Shipper and a couple of other people who, whose names are totally out of my head, so forgive me, called Performing the Digital, uh, that talks a lot about this. Um, Jason Farman has um, uh, the mobile media interface um, book uh, that I think is just, just really great, um, and a number of younger scholars uh, who are doing work in this area as well. I'm advising a dissertation right now uh, that's particularly taking up uh, the ways that mobile technologies are affecting performance. So um, that's a, that's sort of a non-answer. It's sort of like, hey, look in these other places. Um, but I think it's really, I think it is compelling, and I think when you factor in things like uh, you know VR. Uh, films uh, the, that are really saturating culture. The The New York Times virtual reality. Um, the, you know those little short movies that they're publishing. Uh, I think are fascinating and really changing kind of what we're doing, um, as well as the aud- audience expectations. You know, I think when when people come into the th- into theaters, you know, with their smartphones, finding a way to to make a connection there that doesn't negate. What theater and performance have traditionally done, but also doesn't ignore the, the the social context and the the cultural realities that exist outside the theater building. I think are really are really critical. So I'm, I think this is a as an exciting, um, you know, future direction. Um, I think just to kind of address this question more specifically, though, I'll try to be brief. Is that I think that part of and, and this goes back to McLuhan, right? So Marshall McLuhan in, a, in an essay called Cliché from a book, uh, 1970, um, called From Cliché to Archetype, um, wrote that um, in the era of Sputnik and satellites, that the globe had literally become a playing space. That now everywhere that there was, you know, when everything becomes visible through satellite cameras and, and tracking, that the, the world really was a stage. And I think for McLuhan in nineteen seventy that's still a fairly abstract concept for most of us right it's It's somewhat at a distance, but now that cameras are ubiquitous, right? so much so that we now go out of our way to cover them, right? We put stickers on our <laughs> laptops, and you know you can buy like slidey webcam covers, and this notion of surveillance is so is is, is so um, you know penetrating and you know, James Harding has great stuff on this. Lisa Morrison um, has a wonderful uh, book recently from University of Michigan. Like, I'm gonna forget the title, but like, Data, uh, data, something and desire. It's discipline,
0: discipline and desire.
1: Yes, thank I, you.
0: I don't want to get that wrong.
1: No, no, yeah. no. It's it's, but it's, uh, which is a, a great book that that addresses how artists are responding to this. We we really do seem to be in a moment where you know all the world is a photo shoot. and all the world is uh, available for you know a video. You know, mobile films are now kind of have become, like through Snapchat and things like this, have become their own form of discourse. And so I think that that, of course, has to you know reflect back into what we're doing in the theater and also becomes a, a another venue for us to pursue. So I, I think there are a number of different ways uh, that these technologies are shaping theater practices, and I'm excited by them even as I'm you know in the age of you know want to cry ransomware also somewhat unnerved by them
0: okay that's that's uh an excellent coverage of that topic harvey i don't want to cut off anything you might have to say on that but we're almost at the end and we have one more um listener well, well, let me add to. just
2: one quick thing uh, cause i'm in the process Please. of building a performing arts space in downtown chicago and, and and in that space we're going to build in some like a vr studio or two and, and some computer labs and and, and what we're thinking about right now as we're sort of brainstorming what will go in sort of the technology that will go in it's it's about preparing the next generation of theater students to um, have experience with performance capture technology in addition to motion capture technology uh, and then obviously there's you know the regular acting for the camera work Um, and I think that that is more and more of what theater departments are going to do or seat the ground to film departments (laughs) right in terms of preparing. students to create performances and capture them uh, across different media platforms uh, rather than just being the sense of the live body on stage.
0: So finally, uh, Kate Ellswit tweeted at us and she writes, IP for academics. How do you deal, for example, with a lecture invitation that includes a video of the talk to be archived publicly online? More generally, what are contemporary IP challenges you have faced and how do you deal with them? an enormous question. I don't know. Does anyone want to take a stab at this? Harvey? I I, I pass to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, on the one hand, it's an immense and um, really important uh, topic. Uh, you know, I've I've thought a lot about the ethics um, and practicality of sharing my stuff on academia.edu, for example. You know, I've, I've signed... Um, contracts with publishers to publish my work but then there is this kind of growing norm um that people are willing to share their work um outside of those venues for free um and while i think that the work that we do ideally should be completely open access and that in a society you know um wealthy enough and uh I don't know, healthy enough to produce scholarship on a bunch of different topics that it shouldn't be behind paywalls, et cetera. On the other hand, um, we don't live in the socialist utopia that many of us wish we did. And so there has to be funding for, for institutions that publish stuff. And how do you protect that if you're sharing th- stuff, uh, openly, but I will say that I haven't really been terribly concerned about this. Um, I've I've shared some articles with people um, who've asked me directly. Um, in general, I, I'm happy for presses and journals to, you know, take on the task of distributing work. Um, but I don't know. It's an immense topic.
1: Well, a lot of the – I mean, when it comes to self-archiving, uh, a lot of journals will allow you to do pre-print uh, archiving right so you can put the last version prior to publication so it'll have some weird little you know typos and, and edit marks and things like that um, so that's predominantly what what I've been doing Kate's other question though gets to I think the question of the intangible intellectual property right like when you publish an essay whether you make that available online or um or leave it to be published, right? It has your name attached to it. There's something kind of finished about it. People can rip it off, but uh, you know, it's 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 fairly you know the attributes. It's its publication record is established. The idea of the of the talk or the online lecture um, and and the intellectual property around around a less tangible, less uh, fixed kind of scholarship. It seems to me opens up another question. Um, for myself, I tend to err on the side of, um, of making things more available than less. But I think that that is very much a function of my particular privilege at this point in my career and my, you know, I flatter myself, my position in the field, right? There are certain things that I can say. And if someone else tried to say them, uh, you know i i i think i think you know without citing me or without going back to me in some in some fashion that would sound weird right um i think for junior scholars and and graduate students who are still establishing uh their domains and their areas of interest and their reputation in certain things i think this is a very different equation um and so one has to balance the desire to be widely accessible and read and therefore cited and Engaged within the literature against the need to make sure that you are establishing a solid record of work uh, that is a, that is a, that is yours and that is uh, easily associated with you. So I think it's a real balancing act um, at different moments in your career, especially the early years.
0: So, Harvey, have you ever you know shared your articles or um, your work on academia.edu or other? Yes, like yes I have
2: my work on academia.edu, on my website. You know, I generally believe in just yeah. making it available. Yeah.
0: Um, well, guys, we managed to get to um, all of these questions. Listeners, thank you so much for contributing um, to this um, episode, and thank you for downloading. Um, I can't tell you how rewarding it is to know that you guys are out there and um, enjoying the um, recordings that we put out Um, we are releasing this in may and we are going to take a couple months off over the summer Um, but we will be back um, uh, as things uh, get closer to the start of the academic year in the fall so harvey sarah thank you guys so much and um, listeners thank you much thank you very much as well
1: Thank you. Do we want to announce the winner of our of our mug? Yes. Yes. Uh, who who gets the mug? Sarah? Do you want to
0: throw a name out there? Well, let's,
1: let's do a random drawing.
0: Okay. <laughs> this is amazing.
1: Okay. Here we go. So I'm I've put all of the names of our listeners into a hopper here, and we're gonna pull out a name.
0: Oh my god! The excitement. and the
1: winner is Alexander Rip. So we're gonna Yay. send. Uh, Alex Rip, uh, what, what is her tweet name? At Ripple Six One
0: Seven. Six
1: One Seven, um, a complimentary on tap uh, podcast mug for her very own drinking and listening pleasure. But listeners, don't despair. We will do another random drawing sometime in the near future <laughs> for more fabulous on tap swag.
0: This is so amazing. keep listening. I love this so much. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Harvey. And, and listeners, uh, uh, stay tuned, and we'll be in touch soon.
1: Bye, panel. Bye.
0: On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for on Tap, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.